Well, again, it is uh, great to be back with you here this morning, and I hope that your summer has gone well, is going well. I know we're starting to near the end of the summer, and as we're nearing the end of the summer, we're also nearing the end of this particular sermon series, Encounters with Jesus. And as you know, at this point, if you've been journeying with us throughout the summer, we have examined all kinds of characters who've had encounters with Jesus. It might be fitting then that today, as we're nearing the end, we're not quite there, but almost to the end of this particular sermon series, that we're also looking at an encounter that happens at the very end of the life of Jesus. Today, we're taking a look at this encounter between Jesus and really the two thieves that were on the cross, one who recognizes Jesus for who he is and one who does not. And in this counter encounter between Jesus and the two thieves, we hear what is referred to among different scholars as the second of seven words or statements that Jesus makes from the cross. If we were to go through and look, there's actually seven different statements that Jesus makes from the cross. And today, we actually hear statement number one and statement number two. We're going to look mainly at statement number two, but before we look at the second word or the second statement from the cross, it's important to also remember the first statement that Jesus makes. And the first statement that Jesus makes from the cross is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, in Luke 23, verse 34. Meaning, Jesus is asking God the Father to forgive those who are doing harm to him and the ones who are putting him on the cross. Now, this is a truly remarkable statement when you stop and think about it. Uh, let's just try to put this in perspective a little bit. I get angry at those who talk behind my back or say a mean thing about me. I get very frustrated with those who are at a different place politically, maybe than I might be, or somebody who says something mean about one of my family members. And yet here is Jesus actively praying forgiveness for those who are actively in the process of killing him. He's on the cross dying, and Jesus is actively praying for them for forgiveness. That is an incredible reality. It is staggering in its implications. This then sets the tone for the second word or the second statement from the cross of Jesus and this criminal interaction that's going on here today and his dialogue with them. Now, during his ministry, Jesus had gotten into trouble by hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. And now on the cross at the very end of his life, Jesus is actually dying with sinners. We are never told a whole lot about this particular thief. We don't know why the thief was there, what crime he had committed, what crimes had occurred. But we do know this, that the word that is used for criminal here, it means way more than petty theft. It literally means rabble rousers, insurrectionists, terrorists. The literal translation can even be shared as ones who do evil. In other words, these are not guys who were there because they had not paid their parking ticket in downtown Williamsport. They had done some significant, serious, messed up stuff. And it's this terrorist criminal who turns to Jesus today and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, let's pause here in this encounter at this particular point. And we've tried to do this in most of the encounters that we've looked at between Jesus and others, that there seem to be these moments of high significance, moments upon which everything else in the encounter between Jesus and that other individual hangs. 
Moments that we want to slow down time a little bit and zero in and focus on a particular moment to see exactly what's going on. This is one of those moments. When the criminal says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, what time frame do you think the criminal had in mind? When the criminal looks at Jesus, they're all hanging there, and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Let me be a part of paradise with you. When Jesus says, you will be part of paradise with me today, what time frame do you think is actually going through the mind of the criminal? Surely that criminal had to be thinking, well, tomorrow or sometime in the future, I'll be in paradise with Jesus. Maybe he was thinking after they both physically died, then eventually in the future, he would be in paradise with Jesus. Sometime in the future, but not today. I mean, how could that criminal or us think anything different? Here in this moment, Jesus is hanging on the cross with a howling mob in front of him in horrible agony and pain from the worst punishment ever devised by humanity. Jesus is being mocked. He's hanging there. He is apparently helpless. How could any kingdom be experienced in that moment? Surely the only form of kingdom or paradise that could be experienced would have to be sometime in the future. How could it be anything else? It had to be clear to that criminal and probably to us, there was no hope of the kingdom or paradise coming any sooner than sometime in the future. Well, surprise. What does Jesus tell this criminal, this evil person? Luke 23, verse 43. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, not tomorrow, not soon, not eventually, today. Now, surely we might think, Jesus, you're mistaken. You're confused hanging there on the cross. And yet I love the way that the preacher Will Willimon phrases it when he says this. What we would expect, what we would expect would be for Jesus to say to the criminal would be something like this. Someday after I'm gone, when God finally gets things together and sets things right, when this horrible miscarriage of justice has been rectified, then you will be with me in my promised kingdom. So just wait until tomorrow. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, today, today you will be with me in paradise. What an incredible promise to speak to somebody in such a horrible position as this criminal who's hanging there for crucifixion. Now, we might also conceive of the phrase, today you'll be with me in paradise in this way. Since Jesus and the criminal were about to die, they may have been thinking, or the criminal may have been thinking, that maybe that very evening in the afterlife, he would be with Jesus in paradise. He might be thinking, well, technically, I will probably die before midnight tonight. And once I die physically, I will then enter into the afterlife. And at that point, I will be in paradise with Jesus. So technically, before midnight tonight, that's still today, I'll be in paradise with Jesus. But I'm not sure that really captures what Jesus is sharing here either. Again, as Willeman points out, he says, it seems likely that even if Jesus had been walking along some Galilean road in the bright sunshine, rather than hanging on the cross with a darkening sky, 
And even if Jesus had, had, and this criminal had many years still ahead of them on this earth, he says, I believe that this conversation between Jesus and the criminal would have gone exactly the same way. That today you will be with me in paradise. Why? Because of what paradise means. I'm curious, what do you think paradise means? What comes to mind for you? And I just, if you would help me out here a second, would you mind just maybe typing in the chat just a quick thought from you? What comes to mind? What do you associate with paradise? What images? What thoughts? Uh, what do you think paradise is going to be like? Just, just go ahead and take a few moments and just right now, go ahead and type in a few responses. And as you're starting to do that, uh, some of the images or phrases that might come to mind when we think about paradise, maybe we think of things like no pain and living happily ever after. Uh, maybe we think uh, paradise is being in the sky, in a big recliner, watching NFL football games forever. Uh, maybe we think about being reunited with loved ones uh, or being reestablished with pets that we've loved. Maybe we picture golfing forever or reading forever. Maybe paradise for us is 72.3 degrees, sunny, sitting on a beach. Maybe paradise for some of us is all of our favorite meals or desserts. Maybe for some of us, paradise is Duke winning national championships one right after the other, after the other, after the other. Maybe when we think of paradise, we picture being in the presence of God forever in joy and humility and the, and the majesty and the grace of God dwelling in God's amazing love, singing and worshiping and praising with all of creation where there's no more evil or pain. Now, some of those elements I just mentioned for paradise are clearly not true. Uh, I cannot find any scriptural basis for endless NFL games or endless ice cream or even endless Duke National Championships. What we do find, though, is worshiping in eternity in the presence of God, where there is no more pain or evil in the universe. The Greek word here is a word called paradisius, which means grand garden, a region of heaven, a place of pleasure. So picture something like the Garden of Eden. However, if that's all paradise is, a place or a garden, then there's no way that Jesus can tell this criminal that he will be with him in paradise today because that paradise where everything is perfect and wonderful has not yet arrived. That place is still off in the future and eventually God will conquer evil. Eventually injustice will be wiped away, but we're not there yet. So why is Jesus telling this criminal that he will be with him in paradise today. Here's what I think. When Jesus speaks of paradise, he's not speaking of just a place to go to someday. He is speaking of a relationship to enter into today. I think part of what Jesus is saying to this thief here and now is that before this day ends, as you turn towards me and I turn towards you, you will experience then in that moment paradise. Because paradise is a place of special pleasure, but it's a pleasure derived from dwelling with me. That where you and I dwell together, there in that space and place, you will find paradise. And that we can find that here and now together, even in the most difficult, most painful, most suffering of situations. Hear that today, church.
It may seem odd to link together in close proximity the notion of paradise at the same time with the horrors of the cross as Jesus and those two criminals are hanging there. But they do go together if paradise is also whenever, wherever you are dwelling with Jesus. That and that space and place, that's where eternal life begins to take root. Now, to be really clear, I am not saying that paradise will not eventually come to include all of those things, all the joys and delights of heaven and worshiping God for eternity and seeing evil and justice overthrown forever. But I'm also not saying that we have to wait until the afterlife to experience paradise, that paradise can begin right here and right now today. We often view the practice of the Christian faith as preparation for paradise someday. That's not accurate. Our practice of the Christian faith lets us here and now begin to experience paradise, to dwell with Jesus now, to give us eternal perspective now, no matter what circumstances we're going through. We may not fully experience complete paradise right now, but we do get the opportunity to start to live into it, to taste it here and now. What does that mean for this criminal? It means he did not begin to be with Jesus in paradise only after he had drawn his last breath. Rather, he began to experience paradise the moment he realized that the one who hung next to him in agony and humiliation was none other than the Lord of the universe, the master of life, the sovereign King Jesus. Now, maybe in that moment, that criminal did not know the full extent of who Jesus was, but he knew enough. He had seen enough, enough to say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And in that moment, even on the cross, he began to experience a taste of paradise wherein he knew he was not alone. He knew that he was seen, he knew that he was valued, and he knew that he was loved. And that was enough. Enough for Jesus to say, now that you're turning towards me, thief, now that you're beginning to dwell with me, you will also right here and now begin to experience paradise with me. Part of the powerful witness of this criminal today is his simplicity. This thief didn't understand deep theology. He didn't know scripture forwards and backwards. He didn't know how to recite a creed. He had not joined a church or ever been baptized. He had no chance to do anything to clean up his life. He was just hanging there on the cross for his crimes when he let a simple vision of Jesus and his kingdom melt his heart so that he turned towards Jesus, called out for Jesus, and that was enough. To say to Jesus, I see who you are. I would like to follow you. That's enough. That is a sufficient starting place which means you and I also can say, Jesus, I see you. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. I want to follow you. Help me to do that. And when we can trust that that is enough, then we too will experience a form of paradise. The simplicity of all of this to me is powerful and wonderful. It reminds me of a cartoon that I saw a while back. And uh, it's interesting if you look at this. In slide one, you see Jesus telling some of his disciples as he's getting ready to leave, all right, gotta go, dudes. Uh, don't forget what I taught you. 
And then in slide two, we have Jesus saying to the disciples, you know, see you later. And the disciples say, bye boss, see you later. Then in slide three, we see the disciples asking themselves, so what have we learned? And they say, pretty much it's love God and love your neighbor. Then in slide four, the disciples say, well, that seems pretty simple. I don't see how we can mess that up with anything other than, and then they pause and they say, uh-oh. And then in slide five, you hear the disciples saying, here come the theologians. Theologians can make the simple very complex, but they're not the only ones that do that. We all have a tendency to take the simplicity and power of the gospel and make it so complex and thereby water down its significance. So much of what I love about this encounter between Jesus and this criminal is the simplicity of it and therefore the implications of it for you and I. Part of what we see here is that even in our worst situations in life, it's possible to be with Jesus here and now. No matter what version of hell we might be going through right now, and really what situation can be worse than hanging on a cross in pain about to die, even in those moments, we are reminded we are not alone. We can realize today that the God we serve is not a God who sits far off, aloof, from a distance, in the sky, away from our pains and struggles. That is not the kind of God we serve. We serve a God who gets mixed up with us in the messiness of life, even going all the way to the cross with criminals. That means in our deepest, darkest, messiest, scariest, most anxiety-filled places, Jesus meets us there so that we can experience some form of paradise with him. There is no place so dark or messy that Jesus does not join us there. May we know that today, church. We are never left alone. Where is it dark in your life right now? Where are you most anxious? Where are you most fearful? Where are you most ashamed? Where is it messiest? In those places, know that this God meets us and stays with us and invites us to experience paradise today. Some of you probably know the story of the Ten Boone sisters. They were sisters, both victims in the Holocaust. They had opened their home to Jewish refugees and members of the resistance movement until they had been captured by the Gestapo. Betsy Ten Boone, as she lay dying in one of the concentration camps, turned to her sister Corey and said, we must tell them, that is the world, that there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. And they will listen to us, Corey, because we have been here in the darkest of places. Betsy ended up dying at the age of 59. Corey ended up being released eventually because of a clerical error. And when Betsy said that God is deeper still, part of what she is saying is that God is there and God extends paradise even into the darkest and hardest places because of the relationship we can have with God in those dark places. This God stays with us no matter how dark it may get. We can even find God in the darkest of places. And what that means is that we don't have to sit around trying to envision a future someday to be with Jesus. We can be with Jesus here and now, which means we can start to experience paradise here and now. Paradise is not just a future possibility. It can be a present reality today in Jesus.
Scripture tells us that where two or three are gathered, I am there. And usually when we think of that, it's easy to think of a, a, like a life group or some people, some prayer warriors who come together, that just a couple of them, even when they gather to pray, that God is there with them. But today, upon these crosses with these criminals and with Jesus, where these two or three are gathered, Jesus is there. And what a great word for us sinners and broken people as well. We also see in this encounter that in Jesus, it's never, ever too late. There is no reason to think at first that it wasn't both criminals mocking Jesus, reviling Jesus with the rest of the crowd and the soldiers. In fact, we're told in Matthew 27, verse 44 explicitly, that both of these criminals were heaping insults on Jesus. But here by the very end, something unexpected has happened. The one criminal, out of his dying rage, looks at Jesus and says, remember me. Now, we don't know why. Maybe it was watching the countercultural witness of Jesus or hearing Jesus pray, Father, forgive them, even as the very ones who are killing him and mocking him, Jesus asked for their forgiveness. Maybe it was that that undid this criminal's heart. But whatever it was, he turned and straining his neck, he begged Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is not a deathbed conversion. There's no bed, only a splintered cross. But it did reveal that in Jesus, it is never, ever too late. Perhaps this is why Martin Luther wrote in some of his final words, in the end, we are all beggars. It's true. And Jesus did remember him, moved by mercy. He assured this man, today I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. And that was enough. Remember, this criminal didn't have time to jump off the cross, climb down from the cross, straighten up his life, scrub himself clean, and get everything right. All he can do is call upon God's mercy, call to Jesus, remember me, see me. Me who's never before given any attention to you. Me who has hurt so many. Me who has broken so many laws. Me who's only ever thought of himself. Remember me. And Jesus does. And that's enough. For some of us, this is our heart prayer as well. We too have not been giving attention to Jesus. We too have only thought of ourselves. We too have hurt others. We too know how broken we are but it's not too late. We don't have to wait for a future time to get ourselves all cleaned up. Today, we can experience paradise. Why? Because this God seeks to hang out literally and keep company with criminals and not just good church people. This God goes looking for friends in low places, the lowest places, in fact, even among terrorists and insurrectionists. Years ago, some of you might remember the superstar, the country star, Garth Brooks, and he, he sang a song entitled, I've Got Friends in Low Places. And part of the lyrics of that song say this, well, I guess I was wrong, I just don't belong, but then I've been there before. Everything's all right, I'll just say goodnight, and I'll show myself to the door. Brooks wrote those words in reference to being an outsider or no longer wanted by somebody in high esteem. The alternative then was for him to find friends, not in high, but in low places. Now, Brooks wrote that song as a country song. He could have written it, though, 
as gospel as we see Jesus coming to reside among the low. I thank God that in Jesus it is never too late. I thank God that Jesus never abandons us or leaves us alone in darkness or messiness, but joins us there. And I thank God that this criminal had the boldness and the courage to respond to Jesus. Something within him was stirred and he responded to it. It's fascinating to me that both criminals, two criminals were there with Jesus as they were dying. Both criminals saw his witness. Both criminals witnessed the same set of circumstances, and yet only one had the courage to reach out. But when he did, it was enough. To me, the scene of actually picturing the thief on the cross and, and, and Jesus and him summoning the courage and the strength to actually call out to Jesus is just powerful. Because remember, they would have been hanging on the cross. And when you hang on a cross, you lose strength and eventually you can't breathe anymore because your lungs slowly get crushed. So the only way this criminal could have spoken to Jesus was to actually pull himself up enough to call out to Jesus. Which also means that Jesus hanging there would have had to have pulled himself up to look at him and say, today you'll be with me in paradise. It was true for this criminal as he encountered Jesus that day and it is true for us now. What is it today that will allow us to see and encounter Jesus in such a way to experience Jesus today that we would have the opportunity to start to experience a taste of paradise ourselves? Where do we need the courage to ask for enough to call out to Jesus so that we too might experience paradise? And where is it so dark that we think, surely Jesus, you could not be with me here in this darkness and yet to realize he is. Today, I am praying that God will give us the eyes to see that he is with us no matter what, no matter how dark or messy or shame-filled or broken. And to know that paradise can even happen there. More years ago now than I care to admit, I've shared with you that Jen and I had the chance to live in England. And while I was there, I had pastoral care of two churches primarily in a seven-church circuit. Now, one of those churches was the second largest in the circuit. We had maybe 70-ish on a Sunday. But the other church was the smallest in the circuit. In fact, if we hit 10 on a Sunday, it was a really good Sunday. Now, this little building that we gathered in was nothing special. In fact, from my perspective, the first time I saw it, it was rather ugly. From the cracking steps to the forlorn concrete block building to peeling paint to a little wood stove in the corner that didn't warm up until about three quarters of the service was over. Uh, one could not even say that this church had seen better days because I don't think it ever really had. It was out in the country. It was hard to get to. It was hard to picture it had ever been a beautiful place. So you can imagine my surprise when I met the family who showed up every single week to worship in this dingy one-room church facility, and they loved it. They loved the church. They thought it was simple. They thought it was straightforward. They thought it was beautiful. Now, I was having trouble coming to grips with their perception of this shoddy building being beautiful. Because where I saw a crumbling, ugly facade, they saw something divine. How was that possible? Well, they had experienced a bit of paradise in that building over the decades. They had met God there. When somebody they had loved and died, when somebody that they loved had been born, when somebody they loved had been married, when they didn't know where to turn in life, there in that space 
God met them. And there, because God met them, they tasted paradise. And that was enough. And that made that place beautiful for them. It's rather unbelievable when you think about it. We were both looking at the same thing. And there was my impression of a rundown, decrepit, concrete block building. And there was this family's perception of paradise. What was at the root of their perception and mine? The main thing is that I had never met the living God there in that space the way that family had. And that makes all the difference between an ugly building and a gathering for the body of Christ. It makes all the difference between an ugly pile of stones and paradise itself. Wherever and whenever we meet the living God, on the grandest of days and occasions, or in the throes of death and evil and darkness, we do encounter a bit of paradise because Jesus is there. And that is enough. May today be such a day where you and I also experience paradise with Christ this day.